Well, welcome to our 11 a.m. service and the kickoff of this series that we're calling Dust and Ashes. It's a study in the book of Job. Now, when I first became a Christian as a teenager, I avoided the book of Job, like actively. And there were a few reasons for that. One is, even for the Old Testament, the book of Job is pretty strange, okay? There's some stuff in there that when you start reading, you're like, wait, hold up a second. Wait, does that say what I think it says? And it was so kind of overwhelming and confusing. And I was so brand new to the faith that I was like, eh, maybe I ought to set this aside for a little while. Another reason that I didn't really uh, jive well with the book of Job in the beginning is that this is a true story. I actually thought it was called the book of Job. I had no clue that it was Job. I thought it was Job. And as a 17-year-old boy, the only job I was interested in was playing on the N64. Come on, somebody. I wanted to play Mario Kart. I was not trying to think about work. So I just avoided it. I thought, you know what? I'll get to the book of Job when I'm ready to grow up. (laughs) Well, here I am. I'm grown up and we're getting to the book of Job. What I realize now, looking back, is that I totally misunderstood the point of the book of Job. I didn't understand what it was supposed to be teaching me. And I'm not the only one. I think the vast majority of people don't really understand what the book of Job is actually all about. I think even most Christians misunderstand what this text is supposed to communicate to us. Now, there are a few different reasons for that, okay? The first is the book of Job is 42 chapters long. It's a long one. And most people only read about five or six of those 42 chapters. If you've ever tried, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You read the first two and it's this wild story about this guy who loses everything. And you're like, whoa. And then there's this vision of heaven and the devil's there and God's there. And you're like, I'm digging this. And then you get to chapter number three and it's like, speech after speech after monologue after dialogue. You're just like, are these dudes ever going to shut up? Ain't nobody got time for this. And so we skip over the middle section of the book of Job and we jump back to the end where the narrative picks up again. See, we, we focus on the narratives when we read Job's story and we ignore the dialogue, the, the communication piece of it. But when we do that, we actually end up missing a whole lot, like 42 chapters, but we normally only read five or six. I want you to imagine for a moment that you picked up a novel and you read 15% of the novel and then said, oh yeah, I understand what this book is about. No, you don't. There's no way you could possibly understand everything there is to know after only reading 15%. Imagine that you were in a university class and you sat for 15% of the lectures and then you went and tried to take the final exam. There's no way that you would know what you need to know. So one of the reasons that we so easily misunderstand the point of the book of Job is that we actually read too little of it. You gotta kind of take the whole thing in in order to make sense out of it. Now, the second reason that most people misunderstand the book of Job is that it is really easy to get sidetracked by the tragedy that Job goes through. Like you see all the things that happen to him and you become so engrossed by all of that, that you kind of lose the broader picture of what's happening. And listen to me now, Job had basically the worst two weeks of anybody that you could ever imagine. Just picture for a moment, losing your business, your life savings, your pets, your children, your grandchildren, your health, and your reputation all in about 10 or 14 days. 
Like that's a bad month, you guys, okay? And so we read these things happening and it's like an accident that we can't look away from. We stare in horror at what this man endured. And then we think to ourselves, please God, not me. I don't know if I'm the only one, but when I read the book of Job, I'm like, please don't ever let me be a Job, God, okay? So we get consumed by the tragedy of what happens in this story. But when we only focus on the tragedy, we miss the teaching. We miss the purpose behind the pain. When we focus on the mess, and boy, there's a lot of mess, we really tend to overlook the message. And so we've got to be really careful that we pay close attention to what the book of Job is actually trying to teach us. So what is the point of the book of Job? We're going to spend six weeks talking about it. Now that seems like a really long time, but you know what? We're barely even going to scratch the surface of this book. In order to understand the story and the meaning of Job well, you really do need to understand what happens throughout all 42 chapters. But even though we're going to spend a month and a half talking about it, like 42 chapters, six weeks. That means if my math is right, and I'm not sure somebody double check me, that means that we have to spend seven, we have to cover seven chapters every single Sunday. If we're going to go line by line through this, there's no way. So what I want to do today is something that we actually don't normally do on a Sunday morning. I want to show you a 10 minute video that's going to present an overview of the book of Job from chapter one, all the way to chapter 42. It's going to introduce you to all the main characters. It's going to develop a lot of the themes. It's going to help you to kind of keep the broad view of what the book of Job is about. Now, I'll be honest with you. I actually don't want to give up 10 minutes of my teaching time this morning. I would rather talk for these 10 minutes, but I knew there was no way I was going to get everybody to watch this video ahead of time. And I think it's so very important that we're actually going to pause for 10 minutes and we're going to watch this video. So it's animated. It's a really well done video. We're going to dim the lights. You can sit back. You can soak it in. You can enjoy and just kind of get a sense of the scope of the book of Job, the way it all unfolds. And then I'm I'm going to be back to talk to you about some truths that we can learn from the outset regarding this very important piece of scripture. So let's roll the video. Book of Job. It's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? 
Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at. Questions about God's justice and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job who's rebuked by his wife and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and the human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now, Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now, we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job, he'll accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence, and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now, it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now, he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. 
It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of. Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu, and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind, and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth or the feeding pattern of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place, and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day, according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours, it's extremely complex. It's never black and white like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. 
First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth all restored, not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or like Job, accuse God but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. All right, I love those videos. I have watched every single one of them for all 66 books of the Bible. And so if you ever want to know a little bit more, like what's a broad overview of the book of 2 Samuel or something like that, you can go to their website. It's thebibleproject.com. All of their videos are free. And uh, I highly encourage it. It's one of the best resources online right now. Um, You can trust it. I'm telling you that. So go check it out and use it to help you grow in your understanding of the scripture. All right. Now, if you haven't noticed, this series is going to be a little more teaching than preaching. Okay. Um, we're going to be focused on helping you to understand the book of Job and its message and all those different things. Uh, but I want to be sure that I don't just speak to your head in this series. You know, I don't want to fill your bar- your brain, your b- brain. I don't want to fill your mind with a whole bunch of facts and, uh, you know, details about the book of Job. I also want to speak to your heart. I want to speak to your hands. I want you to know what the book of Job is about. I want you to know that you can trust God even when life goes to hell. And then I want you to go live as if that were true. So I'm going to do my best to kind of hit all three of those. And uh, yeah, thank you for rolling with me. Okay. This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you three kind of principles, surprising truths, maybe that we need to keep in mind when we approach the book of Job. If we forget any of these three, as we go throughout the next five or six weeks, then we're going to find ourselves confused and conflicted and certainly misunderstanding what the point of this story is. All right. So let me give you the first one. The book is named after Job, but God is the main character. The book is named after Job, but God is the main character. See, it's easy to assume that Job is at the center of the story, right? The book bears his name. It's the book of Job. He's the first person mentioned in the text. He's the final person mentioned in the text. He's present in every single chapter. And he's certainly the one that we find ourselves relating to. When I read uh, the story of Job, I put myself instinctively into his shoes. I'm like, oh, how would I respond if I lost everything? And again, please God, not me, right? It's like we relate to Job. And so we tend to center Job. We tend to believe that he is the main character of the story. But if you dig deeper, if you read more than just the first couple of chapters and the last couple of chapters, you discover that God is at the heart of this story. God is the main character of the book of Job. Although he doesn't show up until the very, 
very end of the story, um, he is present in every single conversation. Like they're constantly talking about Job. They talk or about God, rather. They talk about God as much as they do Job. Then when God does show up, he shows up in such a demonstration of like power and authority and sovereignty that it's kind of like, oh, whoa, okay. Maybe we've overstepped a little bit here. It's really clear that he is God. He is God. God is God. Can I say that again? God is God. And so by extension, that means, big surprise here, I am not God. And you're not God. God is God. That's one of the things that we're supposed to understand as we read this. He is the main character of this story. And so when he shows up, it becomes incredibly clear that God is actually writing a good story and Job and his friends and his nagging wife and like everybody involved, they actually form a part of the story that God is trying to tell. Consider what Job says in chapter number 42. Remember, I told you there are 42 chapters in the book of Job. And um, at the end here, we're going to read after God shows up and he confronts Job, uh, he asks him all these questions, Job is going to respond. And I want to read Job's response here. Listen to what the scripture says, verse one, after God spoke, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. Job is essentially saying, "Uh, I think I'm realizing that you're God. And I am not. He goes on to say, you asked God, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Job says, "Uh, it's me. That was me. Sorry. I was talking about things. I knew nothing about things far too wonderful for me. You, God said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, Job, and you must answer them. Then Job says in verse five, I had only heard about you before, Lord, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. So verse six, I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes. Hey, there's the title of the series. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. You know what Job is saying here at the end? He was like, whoo, I got a little too big for my britches. That's a Southern saying. I don't know if you guys ever say anything like that here in Alberta, but back in Texas where I'm from, we say that kid got too big for his britches. All right. It basically means we started acting, Job saying, I started acting like I was in control. I started acting like I was the one who knew what was best. And in this moment, Job realizes, oh, wait a sec. I'm not the main character in this story. That God is actually the main character. God is the one who is writing a good story. And I have a part to play, certainly, but he is the one who's at the center of the story. Did you know that's true of every single book in the Bible? God is not only the main character in the book of Job, it's true for every single book. God is the main character of the book of Genesis, not Adam and Eve or Abraham. God is the main character of the book of Jonah. God is the main character of the book of James. We, we get some hints of this in the gospels. The gospels are the four accounts of the life of Jesus. We get a hint of this, like maybe um, if you've ever opened up to the gospels, maybe you turn to the fourth telling of Jesus' life and ministry. You might've heard that, or you might have called it yourself the gospel of John. But if you actually picked up a Bible and you flipped to that fourth gospel, you would see it's not called the gospel of John. It's called the gospel according to John. Why? Because it's not good news about John. It's good news about Jesus told through John. God is the main character in every single book of the Bible. There's one book in the entire Bible that doesn't even mention God by name at all. A single one. People don't pray to God. There's no like direct mention of who he is in the story. One book in the Bible doesn't even mention God. Does anybody know which one it is? 
Oh, so close. It's one of the girl names. Yeah, it's Esther. Esther. So in the entire book of Esther, nobody even says anything about God. And yet, hear me now. If you read those verses, you're going to find out that God is very much present in that story. You can't see him. Nobody's calling out what he's doing. But he is certainly working through those women, saving the Israelite people. Even in a book in which God is not even mentioned by name, he is still the main character of the story. And hear me, same is true for me and you as well. God is the main character of my story. God is the main character of my story. It can be really easy for me to think that my life is kind of like the book of Daniel, you know, which is confusing because there already is a book of Daniel, but roll with me. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like I look at existence as if I'm the main character. This is my story. And I love and appreciate every one of you because you form a very necessary function as the side characters to my story. Thank you guys for being here so you can listen to me preach because this is my story and this is what God created me to do. Y'all are a blessing to the main character. Let me tell you that, okay? Woo! What a terrible way to live your life. Acting as if you are the main character. Acting as if you are the reason that everything exists. And I know nobody would ever say that out loud about themselves, but don't we live as if we thought that deep down inside? Don't we act like our story is the most important story? Don't we act like our pain is the real pain? I mean, I know there are other people that suffer too, but like when it hits me, then it's real. Don't we act like our relationships are the most important ones? Don't we act like our bank accounts are the ones that everybody else should be concerned with? We center ourselves. We act like we are the main character. All the world is a stage and you better believe, sucker, I'm the one that's going to be in the spotlight. Oh, what we read in the scripture is that as we grow in our faith, as we mature, we recognize that not a single one of us are the main character. God is always the main character in the story. I have a part to play. I've got a role to play in the, the story that God is writing. And I am grateful for my role. I love my role, but I'm never going to push God out of the spotlight and say, here I am, world, love me. That's not how it works. Instead, I say, you know what? This story is ultimately about him. My life is about spotlighting Jesus. My life is about accomplishing his will and his plan, not mine. What did John the Baptist say? He said, I've got to decrease so that he can increase. Basically, there's only one, there's only room in the spotlight for one of us. And so if Jesus is going to be in the center, if he's going to be in the spotlight, then I've got to step out of the way and let the main character be the main character. Growing as a Christian is recognized that someone is at the center of the universe and it is not me. One of the healthiest things we can do is to reframe our circumstances so that it's not all about us, but instead it's about what God is trying to accomplish through the entire world. Not just about me, but about you and them and all of us, and most importantly, him as well. So God is the main character of Job's story, of Jonah's story, of Esther's story, of Daniel's story, and of all of our stories. Job reminds us that we are not the star of the show, that God is trying to accomplish something bigger than any of us individually might have our eyes on. That's the first truth. Second one is this. Job in this story has trials, but God is actually the one who's on trial. Now I know some of you guys are like, uh, I 
that makes me uncomfortable, okay? Humans cannot put God on trial. I get it. I'm with you. I understand. Don't freak out just yet, all right? If we kind of read through the story here, and they hinted at it in the video, it can be really easy to get focused in on chapter number two, where there's like this, this heavenly scene between God and the Satan. I don't know if you caught that in the video. There's no Satan in the Bible. It's always the Satan. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, so God and the Satan are having this conversation, and it almost seems like they're making this really wild cosmic bet about how long it's going to take to break Job. It makes God look bad. It makes the devil look bad. It makes Job look like this poor, unfortunate victim in this entire story. It can be really easy to get to chapter number two and to think to ourselves, oh, this is all about Job's trial. This is all about whether or not he's going to stay faithful when life gets hard. If God removed every bit of blessing from his life, would he still serve God or would he walk away? It's all about Job being on trial. However, like I said before, if you only read one or two or three chapters, you will miss the point of the book. And certainly there is a sense in which Job is on trial. We're going to see how he responds and we need to think about how we respond when we're under trials. All of that is true. We're going to talk about that. But just as much in the book of Job, God himself finds himself on trial. The accuser and the humans, they're all saying like, wait, is God trustworthy? Is he really though? Like, how come, how come I'm doing my best and life is not going so well? The book of Job asks questions about, yes, why do good people suffer? But it asks bigger and deeper questions even than that. It asks questions like, does God rule the world justly? Like, is there real justice and fairness in the world? Some of you guys are like, yeah, of course. I, yeah, totally. And then others of you are like, not in my experience. I didn't get justice. My people didn't get justice. My friends didn't get justice. And so there's this question that it surfaces and we've got to wrestle through it. It, it forces us to wonder, what's the point in serving God if that won't prevent suffering? What's the point then, right? Because like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do what God tells me so that God can bless me, right? A another question at the heart of the book of Job is, do people serve God only out of self-interest? Do we serve God only because we believe that will offer us protection and blessing in life? Do we, do we want God because he's beautiful or do we want God because he's useful? Do we want God or do we want the blessings of God? This is like the stuff that Job is surfacing and it's intensely personal and it's completely universal and it's hard and it's difficult, but we've got to start to wrestle through these things. If you assume the answer, okay, to any one of those questions, does God operate according to justice? Is God trustworthy? Why should I serve God even if he doesn't bless me? All of, if you assume the answer, if as a, a, a mature Christian, you say like, of course God is just, how dare you? Those are dangerous questions, sir. You need to stop it right now. If you assume the answer, then people are the ones who are always on trial. Cause it's like, of course God is just. So let's find out if you really believe it. But the book of Job doesn't assume any answers. This is why the book of Job has been so enduringly meaningful. It doesn't offer easy answers. It doesn't give us any platitudes. Honestly, it doesn't even give us a lot of answers. Okay. So what we have to do then is to wrestle through what it does offer and be okay with asking questions. Do you understand in this, in this section of scripture, God allows Job and his three or four friends to just like pontificate and all of them say horrifically wrong things about God. 
They actually blaspheme God and God just lets him go. He's like, yeah, tell me what you think. Let's hear it. And he lets them talk. And he never like beats them down. He never shuts them up. He never stops them at all. Because as the video even mentioned, God approves of the questions. God approves of the struggle. It's okay even if God's on trial. Why? Because God's not going to lose. God's not going to lose. You're never going to bring an accusation against God. And he's going to be like, oh, dang, you were right. I treated you wrong. Mm, My bad. No, never. There's never going to be a question that you answer that God's going to be like, oh God, I hope they don't find the answer to that. I don't know if God says, oh God to himself, but you with me? It's like, oh, I hope they never get the answer to that because when they do, they're going to realize I'm not real and it's all a sham. Come on. Questions welcome. Do you, can, can I say this to you as your pastor? Your questions are welcome. The hard questions, the ones that you're afraid to ask, the ones that past leaders have told you you're not allowed to ask, you are welcome to ask those questions. People ask me those questions every single week. And we have dialogue and answers and chats and more questions. And they're like, whoo, I was nervous. And I'm like, why? Why would you be nervous? Do you know that what you said was not half as blasphemous as the stuff that these dudes said? It's okay. We can figure this out together, all right? And so we ask questions because God can handle it. The the gentlemen, the friends in this story are actually putting God on trial and God still comes out justified in the end. We can do the exact same thing. So Job has trials, but God is on trial. And if you're still like, oh, I don't know, man, that really, I I don't like that. Me either. And I actually think you're thinking in the right way. So stay with me. When we start talking about God's response in about four or five weeks, then you're going to understand why it's okay for us to question God and recognize how God responds and why he does the the way that he does. Okay. All right. Last, last point is this, and I got to wrap up. Uh, Job wants to know why, but God never explains. Job wants to know why, but God never explains. So um, the entire middle section of this book is a conversation between Job and his three friends trying to explain all of those things that have happened. But none of those men are correct. And then God himself shows up. So when God shows up, if it's your first time kind of reading through the book, you kind of expect like, oh, here comes God. All right. He's going to explain it all. He's going to explain the events of chapter two, not just what happened, but like what it means and why Job went through all the things that he does. Okay, God, here we go. Give us the answer. Why has poor Job been suffering the way he has? And then God never says why. He never gives the answer why to this question. Instead, God spends four chapters like exposing Job's ignorance about the basics of existence here on earth. He he essentially says, look, even if I told you why all of this is happening, why do you think that you would be able to comprehend it? Like, like, I know that I have a room full of incredibly smart people. You guys on the bell curve of IQ, you guys are on the high side. I'm with you. Okay. But could we all admit and acknowledge that our minds are finite? There is a limit to our understanding that, that you would have to be infinite to understand the infinity of the universe. Are you with me? So this idea that we know what's right and we know how things should be run at the end, God shows up and he confronts that. And he says, you want to know why, but I can't tell you now stay with me here. It's not that there is no reason why, oh, there is a very good reason why Job suffered. There is a very good reason why you and I have gone through every single thing we have ever experienced in our entire life. However, even if God wanted to tell us, we literally could not comprehend it. We're finite creatures. 
We couldn't handle it. I can, I can explain this with a really simple thought experiment, okay? Right behind us, out there on the west side of the building, got a nice little patch of green space, right? Some green grass and stuff. And I get here in the morning really, really early. It's like 6.30 and um, there are a bunch of animals that are out there. So always the bunnies hopping around, you know, because they're everywhere in Calgary. We've seen skunks. We've seen porcupines. We've seen, um, what else? We've seen all coyotes, all sorts of animals out there. So just be careful when you come to church, okay? I'm telling you, they're out there. For real, for real. Um, The most common animal that we see out there is birds. And the reason the birds are so common is because every morning they're like hopping around on the grass and they're eating like the bugs and the worms and all that sort of stuff that come up out of the ground. They're having their breakfast buffet, okay? Now, suppose tomorrow I said, I'm gonna beat those birds out there to the green space. I'm gonna be the early bird, okay? I'm gonna go out there. And as I go out there on the green space, I see an earthworm that's like slithering around on the grass. And I think to myself, no, there's something special about that earthworm. That's a cute dude right there. And I, I could just tell that is a smart worm. Like he's smarter than the average worm. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this worm and I'm going to spend as long as it takes to teach this earthworm algebra. I am going to do everything I can. So this earthworm will be able to solve for X and Y, okay? I am going to lecture him. I'm going to show him Khan Academy videos. I'm going to assign him so much homework that in the end, it might take a long time, I know, but I am eventually going to teach this earthworm how to do algebra. Of course, we know that would be a fool's errand. I could spend every day for the rest of my life, and there's no possible way that an earthworm could ever comprehend algebra. Why? It, like, I can't communicate in its language. Its brain is not capable of handling numbers and letters and things like that. It's missing a posable thumb, so it can't write with a pencil and a pen. There is no way that I'm ever going to be able to teach an earthworm algebra. Lovingly, the difference between us and an earthworm is so small in comparison to the difference between us and God. If if I couldn't teach a creature here on earth simple mathematics, what makes me think that God could teach me what it takes to run the infinite complexity of all of creation? There's just no way. It's not that there is no answer. It's that the answers exist in a higher dimension or we need bigger brains or something, anything. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it even if God wanted to share it. And so the question of why is not a bad question. It is okay to ask why. However, we're usually not going to get the answer to why. Instead, the meaning of the book of Job, and we're going to flesh this out more week after week, okay? The meaning, the ultimate teaching of the book of Job is that I will probably never understand God's plan, not in any meaningful way, but I can learn to trust God's plan. I can trust that God is good even when life is not. I can trust that there is someone in heaven when I'm going through hell here on earth. I can trust that I am not alone in my suffering. I can trust that even when God's name is nowhere to be seen in my story, like the book of Esther, he is right there. He is working in every single conversation and circumstance there is. All of this is really illustrated. We're going to end here. It's all illustrated by Job and his response to his trials. We go back to chapter one, verse 21. This verse is not on the screen. Just listen to it. Job says this, he says, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. It's certain I brought nothing into this world and I'm not going to be able to take anything out with me. He said, the Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has decided to take it away in all circumstances 
praise the name of the Lord. Not because life is going good, but because God is still good. Not because I have all the answers, but because God is trustworthy even when I don't have the answers. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end with a prayer of surrender. This is what Job did here in chapter one. It's what he does at the end. He just surrenders. He's like, uh, you know, in the end, you're God. I'm not. I trust that you're good. And so this hurts and there's grief and there's healing. Job needed a whole lot of counseling, you guys. I can't even begin to imagine how much time he spent with a psychiatrist after all of this. But you know what? He never lost his faith or his confidence in God's goodness. He surrendered to it ultimately. And he held in tension all of his pain and questions. And I want to do the same thing. So I'm going to pray a prayer of surrender for Daniel Sueza. And if you say, you know what? I think I need a prayer of surrender today. Then I'm going to invite you to join me in this moment of prayer. God, I surrender my life to you. Oh God, I apologize for the times in which I've acted like I'm the star of the show, in which I thought I knew better than you did, in which I thought I could run things well and right and just. Oh, the things that we've talked about this morning, God, they just speak to my heart and remind me I'm not capable or qualified to do that, but you are. And so I bless you and I surrender and submit to you. And I trust that even when life is hard, you still are good. You're present and you're working out a plan that is trustworthy. And God, in this moment, I wanna pray for every single person that's here with us today. I pray for those that are in chapter one of the story. Life is good. Their family is flourishing. Their business is thriving. God, I pray that you would keep them there, keep them blessed. But in this moment, keep their eyes fixed and focused on you because none of this is promised to be here tomorrow. God, I pray for those that are in chapter two. I pray for those that are hurting and struggling. I'm praying for those that are experiencing unimaginable loss. They have a cancer diagnosis or God, they're on the brink of divorce or Lord, they're struggling to even pay basic bills. Uh, Lord, those that feel far from you, wherever they're at, whatever's going on, for those that are in chapter number two, Lord, may they like Job submit and surrender to you. Would they keep their eyes fixed and focused on you? Lord, when everything is trying to pull them away, would they cast their cares on you knowing that you care for them? God, I pray for those that are wrestling and they're struggling. They're in chapter 38 and 39 and 40. And God, I'm praying that they would know that it's okay, that they would be honest. They would give vent. They would talk to you and let you speak to them. And God, they would know that this is a good and right, even a holy thing. And Lord, I pray for those that are waiting for chapter 42, restoration, healing, hope, new beginnings. Oh God, would you grant that to them as surely as you did to Job? And would you help them to process the things that they're going through. Help us, Lord, to be able to grieve well, to be able to live honestly, and Lord, to bless you with every part of our existence. Oh, I'm so looking forward to the rest of our time in this book together, God. Would you bless us as we seek to learn? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.